Welcome back to our podcast series on leadership, where we talk with Australian business and community leaders to learn more about them and try to understand what makes them effective in their roles. What do they see as the most important attributes of a good leader? What are the toughest challenges they've had to face? How did they deal with them? And what did they draw from in the process? My name's Steve Mabs, and I'm the CEO of business and digital consultancy Essient. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Paul Edgington, the CEO of SYC, a large national not-for-profit headquartered in Adelaide. Hey, listen, can we talk about some of the leadership challenges that you faced? Um, uh, and look, I know, I know at the end of 2018, uh, you had a significant challenge to deal with when one of your executives at SYC uh, was caught stealing from the organisation. Mm. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, we had um, uh, a key executive, somebody who was working in the organisation for seven years, who had worked there previously um, and who I'd known for um, about 17 years. He was in a very senior position and he um, had set up a fake, well, he'd actually well, he didn't set up a fake company. He had taken a real company um, at, who was part of and put it into our supply chain and switched out the um, bank account details of the company and inserted his own bank account details um, into it once he got it into the supply chain and steadily over the course of three years had bled money out of it, um, out of us through false invoices. Uh, and we, it was interesting. How much money? About $364,000. And we have people saying, oh, did he have a drug problem or a gambling problem or, you know, was he, did he have a sick child that he was paying for cancer treatment for anything? It's like, no, he was just, he was just an a-hole. He was spending it on champagne and all sorts of other nonsense. Um, hmm. How did you find out about it? Well, we were we were budgeting and rebudgeting, um, and checking um, as as you do, going through your supply chain all the time. Going, you know, do we need that, and what are we buying, and what do we get for it, and when was the last time we tested the market on that? And this company was in there that nobody had seen before or done business with except Michael. Uh, And so our technology guy, um, one of the the invoices was for some penetration testing work. Um, Now, technology guy said, no, Telstra has done that work for us. This company didn't do that work. So that was the start of it. We looked into it. um, And then we rang our auditors and said, we think there's some... uh, there's something weird with this company. Um, he, you know, Michael as an executive was signing off on these invoices, which was within his delegation and it was within his portfolio. So it all seemed to make sense. But he was, as famously happens with anybody who gets caught like this, he was on leave. So rather than ask him, we did the digging ourselves. And uh, that's when our, our, we asked the auditor, does this seem funny to you? And he said, Yes, um, what I recommend you do is cross-reference um, all the bank accounts for your suppliers with all the bank accounts in your payroll system and see if it dings. 
So we did that, and of course, that's how we caught him. It went ding. The, uh, there was a supplier's invoice with his pay that matched his payroll record. Um, and that's when we so just the money, the money was being channeled into a personal account. Yeah, and we just were like, we just couldn't. It was like you go through this patch of like, really, it, mm. it couldn't. It, 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 the disbelief. But then when the evidence is right there in front of you, you're then faced with the, I've got to do something about this. Um, Can you tell us about the, the day that it all came to a head? Yeah, it was in October and uh, of 2018, and it was on a Friday night uh, that we figured it out. And... I thought, uh, where, what do I, where do I go now? How do you report this? Um, you know, you don't just go down to the local police station and say, hey, or do you? I just didn't even know. I'd never had to deal with that before. So um, I was fortunate that uh, a friend, I, a, a, very, a friend who's a very senior police officer, and I rang him and said, what do I do? And uh, here's, the, here's what I found. And he said, hang up and somebody will call you. <laughs> so uh, I did and the phone rang about three minutes later with a, a fraud squad detective who then said, we'll be down there in the next hour. Um, he asked me some questions about what evidence I had. Um, and I had, by this stage, had I'd had the auditors in, I'd checked it, double-checked it, triple-checked it and had it all in a folder. The fraud squad came down that night. It was about 8 o'clock at night. And we spent the next three hours going through what evidence I'd collected. And um, then eventually I had to ask them, I said, look, you know, I've been on this all day and all night. Can I? Can we go home? Can I go home and we'll do it again in the morning? So got up the, the next morning and went through it all again. Um, and then we had to work out how to make sure that he got um, back into the country so we could have him arrested. Uh, so because he was overseas on holidays he, at the time, he was overseas on holidays at the time. So we then, um, the first thing I did on the Monday morning was we went to the federal court and we um, sought an injunction to freeze all his assets. So to make sure that if he did get back into the country or he got wind of the fact that we were on to him, that he couldn't dispose of anything, uh, which the police were mighty impressed with because they were saying most people don't figure that out that quickly but we did um we then um because he was in charge of um our sort of public relations i sent him a, a message overseas saying i need you to come back um to australia we have a uh, we have a pr problem that will have um significant implications for our reputation if it gets out uncontrolled and <laughs> appealing to his this heroic part of him that would rush back to fix the problem. And he's saying, what was the problem? And so he could get a heads up before he came back. And I said, oh, no, it's such a big, it's such a, a explosive issue. I couldn't possibly tell you electronically I need you here. So um, he came swashbuckling back into the country, um, ready to save the day, only to be met by our lawyers serving the freeze order and then the police arresting him. That must have been a, a very tough day um, for you personally because um, obviously you'd worked with him for such a long period of time. Um, but 
before I get to that, how did it, how did this um, affect the organisation? How did you handle it? How did you communicate to your people what was going on? Yeah. So uh, the first, the, 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 the immediate challenge was to let people know um, really honestly what had happened. Uh, so we gathered everybody in the finance team first um, and told them and then I did a, a – I, I spoke to – every staff member, both either through email or in person, saying that what we'd found. Um, because not only was Michael one of my exec teams, but I was I'm the godfather of one of his kids. So we were we were we were friends. Hmm. Uh, and and people knew that. So they also needed to know that um, I didn't hesitate for a moment in doing the right thing as a CEO and as the for the organization. I didn't pause or hesitate for a moment. Um, nor was I going to keep anything from them uh, so they could ask any questions they liked. And that was um, that was just my instinct. It was instinctive to do that. Um, mm. As it turned out, it was the best thing in the world to do because at a time when people are wondering, um, you know, if it has, can I trust the organisation or can I trust Paul and can I trust what's going on here, what was the most important thing was to just tell everybody everything uh, and that's what I elected to do. I then knew that once we got to court that, and the media got onto it, it would be a great story. The media love stories of people stealing the, the um, collection tin from the church, um, even though we're not a church. But um, And I mm. thought I, I had these PR people say, oh, you should say this or say that and phrase things this way and, and I thought, oh, you know, I, I don't. I, I actually think the best thing at this, and I think Australians now have such good BS detectors because they just hear it so much in the media and scammers and politicians and all that. I just thought, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to say it as I say it, say it as I see it, oh. and so I, I elected. My, my response to the media questions when they said, oh, isn't it terrible and aren't we appalled and don't I feel dreadful about him stealing money, um, the, the, my response was the three worst things that could happen to an organisation like SYC is that we had somebody who worked with us who hurt a young person or hurt a child. That didn't happen. The next worst thing that would happen could happen to us is that they stole money that had been donated to us with the intention of spending it on homeless kids. That didn't happen. Um, the third worst thing that could happen to us would be that he defrauded a government contract and stole money, taxpayers' money, um, and caused a fraud against the Commonwealth or a state government. That didn't happen. He stole some money from our overhead that we were supposed to be spending on IT and we got it back from our insurance company. So keeping in perspective what's going on here was really important. And it kind of killed it as a story because it was, I, I think journalists are, are used to people spinning stuff or trying to, you know, minimise it or whatever. I didn't try and minimise it. I just try to say it, keep it in perspective, but also say it for what it was. When they asked, Yeah, speak authentically about what happened. Yeah, and when they asked me, you know, how – how did I let it happen? It was so funny. One of them was about um, 
did you not notice that his lifestyle exceeded his um, his um, station? And I said, well, I mean, it's interesting. I'd like to know from you what the questions are that you would ask. Hey, Michael, it seems that you're living above your station. Um, um, how much does your wife earn? His wife, by the way, was a dentist, um, and his parents are quite wealthy themselves. So it wasn't unusual um, for, for him. But I just wondered how – it's funny how – people are geniuses in hindsight in what you should have done uh, and what questions you should have asked. When I challenge them to, to tell me how they would have handled it, what are the questions you would have asked? Um, of course, they, they, they may say that they would do things, but they wouldn't um, have done anything differently. Um, and I, I suspect most people wouldn't have responded as strongly and as um, clearly as I did at the time, so I'm very. It's a it's a part of my career which was a really low point um, personally, um, very hard to deal with personally, but is one of the high points in my career because when my um, leadership was put to the test, I found a clarity of thinking and a clarity of purpose and a um, that was was um, even you know I thought I had it, but I it, I, I found that I had it in in good shape. I also found that in an environment there where somebody has committed fraud or, or an issue of distrust, you having a clean track record yourself, so, you know, people start looking into you and, and looking into it. And, and I was really proud that my track record stands up to scrutiny at a time when the whole organisation needed to be held open for scrutiny. So it's been a, a low point turned out to be a high point in my career. Yeah, and look, I'll, I'll break from my role as interviewer to say that I remember when you called me at that time as one of your partners uh, that I really appreciated the uh, clarity with which you passed that message through about what had happened and what you'd done and and how it was going to affect things or not. Um, it was it was quite clear and, and clearly you were calm and in control despite everything that had happened. Yeah, I was. I, I un, underneath the surface, the feet were paddling, and I've got like <laughs> I'll bet. walking out into light square and swearing and going, "What the heck is going on here?" But uh, <laughs> that yeah, which, which actually it sort of brings me to my next question, which I, I wanted to circle back on, which was how this whole episode affected you personally. Um, you were obviously uh, friends with Michael, as you said. Um, how did how did this affect you personally, and and has it changed you? Um, yeah, so it affected me uh, while, well, uh, as a, as any professional leader, whether you're an executive or a manager, a CEO, when, when you've got a job to do and you've got an organization to run, um, it's quite easy to focus on getting, doing all of the things. And at that time I had lots of things that I had to do. I had lots of people that I had to make sure were, okay and lots of processes and lots of audits and lots of stakeholders to speak to so i had just lots of things to do and in doing all the things um meant that i didn't really have to deal or think about how i felt um and that was suited me really fine um but as with any traumatic event or any and any business downturn we're going through one at the moment so there's lots of business owners and leaders suffering at the moment um 
you get to the end of all of the things and you will eventually get left alone with your thoughts and, and all those unprocessed feelings. And um, for me, it took um, the trial, um, him going to jail, him appealing his sentence, me having to present again to um, try and defeat that, um, trying to re grow the organization and get ourselves and our culture back together and our organization back together then all those things were done and we were back to being prosperous and syc was a happy place again and syc was um you know a really positive place again doing really good results getting all really good results and that's for me was when i found it the hardest because i didn't feel happy anymore and i was i was really grumpy with my family i didn't trust anybody. Um, I was tired, and um, I need, realized that I needed to take care of my own mental health and uh, deal with my own feelings of traumatic experience, or you know that feeling that something happened that I was I wasn't able to control, mm-hmm. um, and you know dealing with those feelings of feeling foolish and and embarrassed and. That somehow you did something wrong. Um, we're not, you know, and and so I needed time to process all of those things. So and I went, eventually I went and sought um, help from a, a counsellor, and much to her uh, amusement, I had three appointments with her. Much to her amusement, I would sit there and I would tell her how I, you know, how cognitively this was affecting me, and I was experiencing cognitive dissonance where rationally I knew that all of these things were not in my control, but my feelings weren't met. And she would do amusement, sort of go, okay, so you paid me to tell me <laughs> what I would have told you, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I found amusing. And then, But after the third one, she said to me, you know, it's all right just to say that um, um, something happened and, and you were out of control of it and, and you are not in superior command of everything to make sure nothing ever goes wrong in your life, right? And I went, oh, yeah, that's true. Thanks. <laughs> I just <laughs> kind of needed that permission to, because, I, you know, I, intellectually I knew it and I knew physically what was happening to me and, and um, psychologically and um, endocrinologically. I, I knew all of those things rationally. But I just needed permission to let it go, and I needed permission to from somebody who had no vested interest in me, just to give me permission to say, "You can forgive yourself for that," um, and moved on. He's now behind bars, obviously, uh, having uh, gone through the whole court case and judgment. Um, have you reached out to him? No, no. Well, not not. Um, not directly. He um, he he applied for um, to get out of prison for home detention, which meant, as a victim of crime, uh, the victims of crime unit reached out to me to ask if I had an opinion on that. Um, uh, I'm a fairly articulate person, so I wrote a fairly articulate response to that, which resulted in his application being um, denied. Uh, so I don't, I, I don't know, and and I think now though that was that was good in the sense of if he applies for it again or it comes around again, I don't really care um, if he gets out now, um, because I, you know, we've 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 moved on. Um, it was his thing, um, 
so yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would reach out to him, um, but I don't feel so, um, I still feel aggrieved. I think I'll always feel aggrieved, but I, I'm not in that place where I'm giving him anything more. Yeah, what would you say if you bumped into him in the street one day? I'd just say, you know, it's. I'd just say, look, I'm, I'm so disappointed. Um, I can't believe, you know, I would. Just, that's all I really would have to say to him. I, you know, I, I, um, uh, he was a friend of mine. I cared about him, and and some, I'm sure, at some place in me, I still do. Um, but I'm just so. I would say to him, look, you know, I'm so deeply disappointed. Um, mm. You hurt people. You hurt me, um, and you did it for no reason at all, um, other than greed. Um, deeply disappointed. I thought he was better than that, um, and I thought it dishonoured the work that we do at SYC. Uh, and I feel really deep in my bones that that's that's uh, an important thing. So um, you know, he hurt people, and and we're in the business of not hurting people. So yeah, if I if I saw him, I don't think I'd be mad anymore. Uh, I think it'd be. My reaction would be, for him, it'd be worse than me being mad because I'm just disappointed. Mm. Listen, I wanted to talk about also uh, the other big leadership challenge that I guess uh, most organisations are facing at the moment, which is the COVID-19 threat. Mm. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about how you've had to adapt in the way SYC is working and how do you keep in touch with everyone uh, when we're all working apart, for example? Sure. Well, about... Two-thirds of our people are not working from home. They, so the nature of our work is that we work face-to-face with vulnerable people. Um, for our job seekers, we, are, um, we have our staff going to our offices, but the doors are locked, so job seekers aren't coming in. We're servicing them uh, through telephone contact and, um, and email and other electronic forms. All of our back office staff are working from home though and uh, we are all on uh, Microsoft Teams or WhatsApp, FaceTime, Zoom. We are SMS, email. We are all over each other. Um, so <laughs> it's been – I think we're um, speaking to each other and working more closely ne- apart than we ever did together. And I think you're – not, You're not the first person to have said that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I think part of it is you appreciate the fact, you know, we just took for granted that we could just talk to each other whenever we wanted. Um, And now that we um, can't see each other or be in each other's presence whenever we want to, we kind of value it a bit more. Um, And um, I think what all of this digital um, communication does is sort of makes us, it, it works really well for established relationships. I'm not sure how it would work sustainably for new relationships with um with people um time will tell i guess but our 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 staff have been really fantastic at um changing the way they work but our face-to-face like we have um, children under the guardianship of the minister who uh live with us in our specialized residential care homes and and we have a shop front service for young people who are in crisis so we can't shut the doors on any of those things so our people just have to keep doing what they're doing and keeping personal distance and, and following um, safety rules around that. What do you uh, what do you like to do in your spare time? How do you how do you unwind and recharge? Uh, I'm a 
I'm a petrol head. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I'm sitting here in my office looking at I've got two glass cabinets full of 118 scale cars and one cabinet they're all um, saloon cars um, of Alan Moffat and um, Craig Lowndes and all of those sort of things. In the other cabinet there uh, is a cabinet full of 118 scale Mercedes and a collection of all of the matchbox cars I had when I was a child but um, repurchased and in their boxes. Um, out in, in the garage I've got a, uh, an old an old Mercedes and I've, I've got another one up at um, my mother-in-law's house. Uh, so I get enormous pleasure from um, uh, washing them, which is a great amusement to my neighbours. I, I pull a car cover off, roll it out into the sunshine, put a, a, a vinyl record on and, I'll clean and polish underneath. Last weekend, I vacuumed the battery tray um, and cleaned that of one of my cars. So um, occasionally, I even drive them. But (laughs) 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 I find it really meditative. I'll go out and I'll wax and polish or I will spend um, my holidays underneath the car with kerosene and a toothbrush and clean underneath it for a hot, you know, four or five days at a time listening to vinyl records and I will be the most zen person you've ever met. It's just <laughs> love Who it. Do you listen to, who do you listen to on those records? Who's, who's your favourite band? We're talking about bands from the 70s, yeah. I take it. Yeah, uh, I've got uh, lots of uh, records by The Who, um, mm-hmm. Cold Chisel, um, there, so, and then some, you know, <laughs> Noise Works, um, Peter Gabriel, all of those sort of things I just really loved. And um, then my dad's record collection, which I, after he passed away, um, one of the records that my 12-year-old son and I enjoy the most is by, it's called Going Places by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. (laughs) We love it. Fantastic. Um, What advice would you have for future leaders who are in the formative stages of their career? Yeah, um, I, I when I was younger, thought that um, what was going to be really important was for me to be powerful and rich. Uh, and in the early days, um, being powerful meant kind of being brash and being rich meant you had lots of money. Um, what I would say to young people is while that uh, sort of, sounds and looks like a traditional version of being rich and powerful. Being rich and powerful is actually how um, kind you can be to the people that work with you and how respectful you can be. Um, and you find that learning to be kind and and respectful is far more powerful than being brash and that money is not a measure of, of being rich um, because if you add value to people, whether that's adding value to customers, adding value to clients, adding value to your friends' lives, money just comes in by accident. I'm, I'm not particularly I, – I, you know, as a CEO, you have to be have good financial skills, but I'm not that good at it. But I've never really worried about making money. I've always found that it comes in – um, when you offer value, um, and you know you can you can make money by um, 
doing tough stuff and screwing people over or doing that sort of stuff, but it's not very sustainable and it's certainly not rewarding. Um, so for a young person, I would say, you know, coming up to be a, a leader, um, I'd say find out, connect with your values and work out how to be um, authentic to yourself and kind to people. The other thing that I would tell them, Steve, is, and I would warn them, is if you are going to be an optimistic leader, optimists get hurt. So grow a thick skin. It's, you know, you'll get hurt along the way um, and things that you don't care about won't hurt you, but you will not be a good leader if you don't care about it and things you care about will hurt you from time to time. So it'll be important to learn skills about being resilient and thick-skinned so you don't become cynical. What would you do differently in your life if you had a do-over? Um, what would I do differently? Um, I think I, <laughs> some of the simple things. I would have bought a house younger instead of spending so much time on stupid cars. <laughs> you know, I would tell my younger self, don't, don't hot up that Cortina. It is a waste of money and it's a piece of junk. Buy a house. <laughs> um, the other sort of thing, it's really, if I had a do-over, that's what I would probably do. <laughs> I think there's a few of us who probably wish we'd invested in real estate when we were younger, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I wish I'd done that. Um, but other than yeah. other than that, I, you know, I... I, I don't look back and, and regret anything. I think there's things that I could have done better. I, I think that I maybe if I studied accounting, I would be better with my money. Um, but, again, who cares? Like I, I don't think there's anything that I would go back and say I haven't learned from um, and hasn't made me better. So I probably wouldn't, wouldn't change. There, there are conversations I would have had with people when I was – young and brash and a bit ignorant that I would probably go and say sorry about that. Um, but at the time, <laughs> I didn't know any better. I can't be smarter than I am today, Steve. I'll, I'll be smarter tomorrow. <laughs> what do you hope your legacy will be? I I, I really hope my legacy is that um, um, both as, as a leader that people remember me as uh, somebody who genuinely put everything I had into my role and that, that I genuinely loved the people that I work with and work for. And I don't mean – I think love is one of those things that in corporate world you kind of go, oh, we all get a bit squirmy around using the word love um, <laughs> because, you know, we don't we, – we throw it around but we don't talk about it genuinely. I, I, I authentically mean that I hope – Love is one of those things, the more you give it away, the more you get back. It's, it's kind of, it's almost embarrassing. You try and keep giving it away and, and you get more of it back. And if you love what you do and love the people you work with, you get more of it back and it, it does become embarrassing, an embarrassment of riches. Um, so I hope my legacy is that people remember uh, that I really loved what I did and, and loved what I loved them and created for them. I also hope that my legacy is that I made the systems. I, I'm a really strong think systems thinker, and I and I hope that I contribute to building a better system that deals with young people who experience trauma and homelessness. 
tell us about the future of uh, SYC. You know, what are your um, current priorities and, and, and what are you personally focused on at the moment to take the organisation forward? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think um, there's so much we've got to do. There's, there's, we're just um, youth, we're just getting it with COVID. Um, youth unemployment is we've got it, we're at risk of losing a whole generation of people that won't get leave school and find work quickly because um, there are all these other people who have experience who will be scrambling for jobs. Um, all of the first jobs and entry level jobs that sh- young people should go into have been wiped out. So um, I think we've got a lot of power of work to do to design a national youth employment strategy and for SYC to be part of that. I think we've got a power of work to do to think about and crack this problem of housing affordability. There's a whole generation of young people who are losing, you know, giving up on the idea of owning their own home before they've even started. Uh, and I think that that's a wicked problem to to work on. Um, and the the use of technology, um, things like, you know, Cortana and um in, in Microsoft in using voice and facial recognition and um, cloud data um, and AI and machine learning. I just think that there's so much opportunity there for SYC to play in a space with government to use avoided cost modelling to deliver better, better funded, um, better targeted projects for disadvantaged Australians. So, you know, I... I uh, on the days that I think I've, I've, I've you know, been there for 18 years, maybe it's time for somebody else to have a go um, at running it, and I have those days as well. And then I start saying, and I hope they do this, and I hope they do that, and I hope they do this, and I get excited about all the things that we still got to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here I'll be in another year going, I've only, I'm only going to be here for one year. one more year one more year (laughs) Paul look thank you so much for your time today Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you as always uh, and your dog uh, and my cat Um, (laughs) so we wish uh, you and SYC all the best in the future so thanks again for, for joining us on this podcast thank you Steve I really appreciate the opportunity thank you Please join us again next time when we further explore dimensions of leadership through the experience of another of Australia's top organisational leaders.